0: I was thinking the last time I spoke here was like 26 years ago. How many remember that? (laughs) I'll try to do better. Anyway, I didn't know how it was going to go when I saw the guy walk in with his mattress uh, before church today. I thought, boy, I hope he doesn't bring it into the sanctuary, but... I guess he took it into the nursery. Well, it's a privilege to be here with you today. We look forward to what God is going to do in our midst. I invite your attention to Acts chapter 2, verse 12. The title of my message today is, What Does This Mean? What Does This Mean? This is about the day of Pentecost, and uh, there were some unique things that were happening that day. And uh, when unique things happen then uh, we realize it can cause questions. And in verse 12, we read, And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is living and powerful. We know, Lord, that when your word is spoken, that our hearts have opportunity to respond And we pray, Lord, that our hearts will be very open to understand what you're trying to say to us today. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to uh, respond by just opening our hearts up to all that you want to accomplish in us. We don't understand this book without your help because your word tells us that These are spiritual words that need to be spiritually appraised. And so we're asking you that you will send the light of your spirit to our darkened understanding and help us, Lord, to be able to perceive truth. And more than that, we pray that you send your Holy Spirit to strengthen our crippled wills so that we won't just have information, knowing better and doing worse but that you'll help us, Lord, to put into practice the things that you're teaching us today. And we'll thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, leading up to the day of Pentecost, there are a number of things that we want to uh, understand uh, that the disciples were being taught in leading up to what uh, God was doing on that very special day. Uh, before the cross, uh, Jesus took his disciples And he said in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. This is marking a shift in the way that God was going to be working with his people. We understand as uh, the Jewish people, and Jesus was working primarily uh, with the Jewish people at this time, they understood what it was like to have God with them. Because when they were going through... Uh, the desert experience and wandering in the wilderness, all they needed to do was look in the direction of the tabernacle and they could see a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If they ever wondered, is God still with us in this long, long journey, they could just direct their attention towards the tabernacle and they would uh, be reminded of the fact God is still with us. Jesus is bringing them into a new understanding, a dimension of the Spirit's operation in their lives is that uh, the Spirit was now going to be in them. The temple wasn't just a place that you would go to in order to worship God, but that the Spirit was going to come and that individual people were going to become a habitation uh, for the Spirit. This all happened before He even went to the cross. I, I'm so glad that God has a way of preparing us ahead of time for things that he is going to be doing, even though the disciples didn't understand a lot that was going to be happening. He was giving them, step by step, a little bit more insight into what he was doing. And so you are being taught, even right now, for things that you don't even know are going to be happening in your lives. You can be prepared uh, by the Spirit. And so we're just saying, Lord, I just know whatever I have in front of me. I'm going to be prepared because you're already working in me. After Jesus went to the cross and he rose from the dead, but still, before the day of Pentecost, uh, in John chapter 20, we read that he got his disciples together, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is what we call the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and it's a, it's a key uh, in understanding that the disciples were in this moment born again. You know, I used to wonder, when were they really born again? I mean, they walked with him. But remember, the the old covenant was still in place until Jesus died on the cross. And he called them out to walk with them. They had a lot of questions. They had a lot of things that they would face as they walked with him. But at this moment, we see that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Go back into the beginning where Adam and Eve were created. When God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the scripture tells us that man became a living soul. But they were warned don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and uh, as soon as they were told that they started to inch their way over there and get as close to it as possible and sure enough they ended up eating from that tree and when they did as promised they were cast out of the garden god said in that day that you eat from this tree you will surely die now some people say well they didn't die they walked out of the garden. They were cast out of the garden. They didn't drop dead the moment they ate up. But something fundamental happened in their spiritual life in that there was a spiritual death. The body took a while to catch up, and we see that death is an issue that we've dealt with uh, ever since. But uh, spiritually, they died. And Jesus here in this moment is saying, uh, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is different from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the infilling of the Spirit. But the indwelling of the Spirit is where now Jesus, which he had promised, saying that he will be in you. You see in this moment that now the Spirit is coming to live within them. There's not a child of God who does not have the Spirit of God living within him. In fact, if we don't have the Spirit of God living within us, we are not the children of God. Look at what Paul had to say about this in Romans 8. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. This is important for us as Pentecostals to understand so we can explain to our friends. Sometimes our non-Pentecostal friends think that they don't have the Holy Spirit. Well, anybody who's born again has the Spirit residing within them. These were two totally different experiences, and Jesus was walking them through that. They experienced the Spirit when he breathed on them, and they received the Spirit. And then later, we find out that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, before uh, he ascended into heaven and before the day of Pentecost, he gathered them again together in Acts chapter 1. It says, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And this we have to keep in tension with what just happened. He had breathed on them before and said, receive the Spirit. But now he's saying, not many days from now, this is going to happen to you. Definitely uh, a different experience. In verse 8 we read, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now there's something so important in this for us who almost 2,000 years later are still uh, experiencing what God is doing in the earth. There is a, a credibility gap if we are only passing down things that we've heard. There's one thing of passing down a story which is true. It's another thing to witness something which is true. Let's say if downtown there was an accident and somebody went through a red light and and plowed into another car and there was some type of serious injury, maybe that ended up in some type of a lawsuit and it ends up in court and they call the witnesses forward and the first witness that comes up said, well, you know, I wasn't really there, but... Uh, my next-door neighbor has a cousin whose aunt was there on the corner, and this is what she said happened. And she he relates the story. And you know what? It could be absolutely true what the person is saying. But you know, in their minds, they're starting to think, okay, this was the person's neighbor who had a cousin who had an aunt that was there. It could be true, but is it really 100% true? Then they call another witness up and he goes, I was there on that day. I saw that blue car plow right through that red light and smashed into uh, that green car. And uh, that's exactly what happened. And people start to nod their head because this guy was there. This is this dimension of the Spirit that brings a new level of credibility to our witness. Not that we will be baptized with the Holy Spirit so that we'll do more witnessing, but they were actually experiencing in the realm of the Spirit something which is increasing the level of credibility in the way that we relate to the world. And on the day of Pentecost, when uh, we read in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now we go back and realize this wasn't something that was contained in that upper room, but it spilled out into the marketplace. Uh, there was a, a level of volume that happened with that experience, a spreading out of the people to where those that were coming back for the day of Pentecost, which was a feast People were coming not only uh, from Jerusalem itself, but there were people that were coming from the diaspora, the sending out of people, whether they'd been hauled off through captivity following a war or whether they had moved into other areas and their kids had been brought up in different parts of the world. Now they were coming back for this great feast because it was, yes, a religious uh, time, but it was also a cultural time where if your kids were brought up in different parts of the world, you wanted to give them. Them a good taste of judaism wanted them to hear some hebrew then you would bring them back in and when this religious feast would go on uh, their kids could experience it they would stay for a number of days what was interesting about it is that they were uh, speaking in their own languages when they came out people said this is this is amazing what does this mean in fact uh, because it was so supernatural, and we're not used to the supernatural, uh, people had to kind of categorize it in some way. And so they said, well, I think they must be drunk. I mean, you know, they're, they're obviously dressed one way. They're speaking another way. And uh, I, I really don't, I don't get what's going on. They've got to be drunk. And that's when Peter got up to explain what was going on because they were saying, what does this mean? They were amazed. And they were in great perplexity. When God moves, sometimes we have uh, mixed emotions. On the one hand, we love it if God is going to move and do something in our midst. But when he moves in power, it can be scary because we're not used to that kind of power. And there was that mixed emotion that was going on uh, in the people that were there on that day. What is going on? What does this mean? In verse six, we read, and when this sound occurred, the people came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. What I want to say is whether it's uncomfortable or not, people are drawn to the supernatural. People are drawn to that which is out of the norm. And it could be that there was some spiritual hunger there. It was probably just plain curiosity because they were hearing them speak in their own language. If you've ever been out of the country and uh, and you're in a place where uh, a foreign language is spoken on a regular basis and you, you detect somebody that speaks your language and in your dialect, you just uh, really your ears perk up and you want to find, oh, those are my people. And you'd want to. You find you'd probably not be drawn to them if you were back in the States. But because you're there and you're hearing it, it draws you towards them because there's something familiar about that. So they were all coming together uh, to hear what was going on, and they were amazed by that. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But they were speaking in tongues. A lot of people say, oh, you know, that's just a little bit too weird. I don't know if it's, you know, I don't know if I want my neighbor to hear that. How many remember the first time you heard somebody speak in tongues? Were you a little freaked out by that? You know, some people say, I'm not going back there. And then the next week they're there. There's something unique about be- encountering the supernatural. It's like, stay away, but come over here. I want it, but God, could you calm down? When you're going to move in a powerful way. What, what's one of the first things that angels would say in scripture when, when they would show up or God was doing something? Do not be afraid. Well, why would God scare? It, it's not that God is trying to scare us. It's just that we're not used to the supernatural. We have become so used to working in the flesh, operating in the flesh, living in the flesh. When God begins to really move in our heart, you know, we may just start off with goosebumps, but we know This is not your everyday experience. Tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. You know, we're living in a day where uh, people sometimes are saying, we need to tone it down so we don't scare people when they come to church. But... (laughs) But the thing is, is uh, people are looking for something. You know, let's face it. People pay money to go to Cedar Point to go on the world's biggest roller coaster. And they will pay good money to get scared out of their wits. People pay money to go to movies about zombies and vampires and horror films. What? To get scared out of their minds. Why? Because we know there's something. We we like to be pushed almost to our limit. We We don't want to live just ordinary mundane lives. Somebody might be saying, I do. But for the most part, we want to know because we're all going to be facing things that are bigger than we are. We want to be in touch with something that is bigger than the stuff that is bigger than we are. We want to know that when we're up against a challenge, it's not just what I have as a reserve inside of me, but I want to know, is there a God who is bigger than all the stuff that is threatening me? There are events and there are movements and there are people in this life that are bigger than we are. And we take comfort in knowing that there's something bigger than all of that, all of them. We take comfort in knowing that there is a God. And to find out that there is a God who is on our side, who is for us, is a great relief. Look at Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Psalm 118. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He so, said, Well, I can tell you a few things that man could do to me. But what, what the Bible is talking about is the the ultimate questions of our lives. What happens when I die? What if somebody does the worst to me? I, I want to know, I want to know that I have something that is bigger operating in my life, surrounding me, that's supporting me, that's hovering over me, that's got my back, that's walking in front of me, and that's what this is all about. Of all times, the church of Jesus Christ should not be embarrassed by the supernatural. If, if people are going to dabble in that which is evil, then we ought to bring, bring the purity of the power of the gospel into their lives. And the Father wants worship to be supernatural. Do you remember when he was uh, talking with the woman at the well and uh, he asked for water? and uh and she said we don't have anything to dip into there with he says well give me some water and uh, he said in fact i have a water that if you drink from this water you're never going to be thirsty again and she's going yeah you don't have anything to dip with what are you talking about and uh, he was talking about a living water they got into a conversation and uh and then he said go tell your uh husband to come and we'll talk about this she says um I've had a few husbands, and the one I'm living with right now is not my husband. She decided to say, You are a prophet. She wanted to go tell about this encounter with Jesus, and it got uncomfortable for her, so she changed the subject into something theological. And she said, well, you know, you Jews, you like to worship over there on that mountain, and we like to worship on this mountain. And have you ever gotten somebody, if it gets too close, they ch- they'll still talk about religion, but they don't want to talk about what's really going to affect their lives. So she turned it to something which was theological. And, and Jesus would not allow her to move away what was, from what was really important. In fact, he said to her, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You can look at that in John chapter 4. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the the powerful combo in religion is to worship God in spirit and in truth. It probably sounds kind of like a cliché, but uh, it's been said that if you worship only in truth, you'll dry up. If you worship only in spirit, you'll blow up. But if you worship in spirit and in truth, you'll grow up. And that's, that's really where our balance comes. You know, I grew up Pentecostal. I'm a fifth generation Pentecostal on one side and third on the other. And when people say, it must have been boring to be a preacher's kid and grow up in church. Oh, no, no, no. It was not boring for me because I never knew what was going to happen in church. We had Brother Tussie, you know, and Brother Tussie would get blessed. He'd go, shake, you know. We like to sit by Brother Tussie, you know, uh, so that if he got blessed, you know, we were like right, you know, firsthand witnesses of what was going on. Worshiping in spirit and worshiping in truth is a powerful combination There are people that will nod to the truth, but they're not excited at all about what I just, you know, I just want my Bible. Do you experience it? And then there are some people, they'll do whatever. And you try to say, well, you know, the scripture says this and they, they, they lean one way or the other. If you want to be balanced and really grow in the Lord, you need that combination of the spirit and truth together. So the question is, when we're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, do I need this to be saved? That, that was one thing, you know, that some of my non-Pentecostal friends when I was growing up would say, are you saying that I'm not saved? No, we're not talking about that at all. Yeah, but so do I need that to go to heaven? No, you don't need that to go to heaven. Then why do I need it at all? Well, it's, it's more than salvation. It's not about what I need. See, there are some people, and when you live in a society that's very much, even in religion, what what's good for me? Okay, then it's like if if I know I'm going to heaven, it, there's a lot more to living for Jesus than just us getting to heaven. We have a task before us. Jesus said, "Go into all the world and preach the gospel." We are inadequate for these things. We need something more than that. It this has more to do than just salvation. It's talking about uh, the salvation of others. They were already saved. Remember, he breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit. But now he said, wait in Jerusalem until this happens. Why? Because they were going to need a dynamic. They were going to need something much more powerful than just personal experience to thrust them out into the world. And Jesus told them to do it. That should be enough for us. Okay, that Jesus told them to go and wait. What happened in that upper room could not be contained in that upper room. I can tell you that if it can be contained and it can be controlled, how supernatural is it? I mean, God, when we are being led and moved upon by the Holy Spirit, will put us in situations that are going to make us at times feel uncomfortable. But really, living out the the message of the cross is all about doing things that are uncomfortable for us. Have you ever thought about what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross daily and follow me? What is taking up the cross? I battled with that for the longest time because I thought, I don't need to go to the cross. Jesus went to the cross for me. But when he said, you take up your cross and you follow me, what does that mean? Well, let's examine what Jesus did. Jesus took up the cross. Why? Because he was looking for something entertaining to do on a Friday through Sunday? No. He took up the cross because it was beneficial for me and beneficial for you. And when he says, take up your cross, he means that sometimes we're going to have to enter into situations which are uncomfortable for us, but are bringing ultimate value and benefit to other people. We're all prone to like, hey, make my life as easy as possible. But there are sometimes as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will thrust you right into the middle of something that you're going to say, I don't like this at all. I don't like being here. I don't like doing this. But you have to say, Lord, if this is going to bring benefit to somebody else, sometimes there might even be somebody uncomfortable that God is going to bring into your life. Can you think of anybody like that right now? You think, Wow. Maybe God is putting you into a situation where you can shine for him, where you can take up your cross. And the thing is is say, oh, that sounds just real negative. No, it isn't. Anytime there's a cross, there's always a positive outflow from that. God putting us in an uncomfortable situation to bring benefit to other people Sometimes you are the only person that God can put in that situation or put in that person's life because nobody else is interested, nobody else has the time, but God knows that He can trust you to say or to do or to be around that person or in that situation. This is what the moving of the Spirit does in our lives. It takes us places where we probably normally wouldn't want to be. The invasion of the supernatural is going to make people feel uncomfortable. But yet we've been called to soothe those that are troubled and to trouble those that are comfortable. But it is this impetus, and by that I mean this force that makes something happen. When you say the impetus of something, it's the force that is moving or making something happen. That impetus of the Spirit moves us out of our comfort zone. Very often we'll say, well, you know, you need Jesus in your life. Jesus will make your life wonderful. And you know what? It's absolutely true. Jesus has made my life wonderful. But by following him, he's also gotten me into some sticky situations. He's gotten me into some situations where I thought, why am I having to go through this? And I can tell you that this powerful interaction of the Holy Spirit uh, is not just to find us a way out of every situation. He does help us. There's always going to be a way through things that we have to face. But there are times where you would like to get out of something more quickly than uh, what you would like. And God, I can remember one time he spoke to me and he said, no, you will stay and it will get worse. And I thought that had to be God because I would, I would never tell myself that. And sure enough, I did, and it did get worse. But there was an ultimate good that came out of that because of the obedience to the Spirit. Spiritual encounter took the message deeper than just simple oratory or human speech. When you look at what happened to Peter on that day, Peter just a couple of months before that, had been the one who had denied the Lord. And and he knew he was denying the Lord, was reminded of the fact that he had denied the Lord, and he wept bitterly and wanted to get away from it. And now we see, baptized in the Holy Spirit, he was the one that gave that initial sermon on the day of Pentecost, and over 3,000 people were saved. He took a person who felt inadequate within himself and made him adequate in the power of the Spirit. He didn't allow him to say, well, you know, I know you don't think you're up to it, so you go sit there, I'll find somebody else. He said, no, I'm going to show you what I can do through you. I can, I'm going to show you how I can come in and take over and do something powerful in your life. Pentecost teaches us that the kingdom is... Uh, not about politics. It's not about entertainment. The kingdom is not about cultural superiority. The kingdom is reaching the human heart with supernatural power. Pentecost teaches us that the kingdom is reaching the human heart through the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. People are drawn by the supernatural, but we find out from the day of Pentecost that It's not just so we can see something happen. But when God gets our attention in a supernatural way, it's because he wants to speak to us. And when he speaks to us, he speaks our language. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we read, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, our family is a very international family. My wife was born in Brazil to uh, German speaking parents because her grandparents had come from Germany and Austria. And so they maintained the language. If you know anything about German culture, you know that, you know, for 400 years there were pockets of, of German speaking people that were living in different parts of Russia. Uh, Some of them, you know, grew up and never even spoke Russian, but they kept their language, okay? You can imagine then their identity was very much uh, around that language. But yet, most people who are raising uh, their kids in a foreign culture uh, always are going to understand that they're going to learn Uh, the language of the culture that they're growing up in too. As much as you want to speak that language at home, they're going to pick up, especially now with uh, media the way it is, kids are going to pick up on the language of the host culture in which they live. And so you can see these parents wanting to bring uh, their kids back into uh, the old country, so to speak, to experience the religion, to experience the language. And, and they're there, you know, taking in all the sights. I mean, it was a, a, a fantastic festival. And then this happens. And they hear these people speaking in their own language. They it, Look at verse 7. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why... Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? Why would they ask that? Well, it's because, you know, for years, you, uh, you didn't travel really a whole lot, so you pretty much dressed like the people in your village. If you did travel, maybe you went over the mountain and the people on the other side of the mountain basically dressed like you did. Maybe the ribbon was different. Maybe there's a little color uh, different. But if you if you go to any of the villages or towns or cities in Europe, when they have a big festival, they bring out the regional attire and, and they dress up and, and it's really neat to look back on. But it used to be you could be identified. If you traveled, you didn't have a large wardrobe. You pretty much dressed like everybody else in your village. And so this is what caused them this problem. They're going, these people are Galilean. We can tell. But they're speaking in our language. There was some incongruence going on here. They look like this, and yet they speak like this. How is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? This was uniting them from this being away from Jerusalem and yet saying, wow, I'm in Jerusalem to... Mom and Dad brought me here so that I would hear this, and yet, wow, that guy speaks just like me. But he doesn't look like me. He's not dressed like me. What's going on? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya, around Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. You know, isn't it interesting that God didn't say, come and learn the language of religion and then I'll talk to you. No, God was taking a step to actually speak to them and speak to them in a way that they really understood Nelson Mandela said that if you talk to a man in a language he understands, that goes to his head. If you talk to him in his language, that goes to his heart. I can remember, uh, a number of years ago in Warren, Ohio, I was on staff with my dad for, uh, like seven years and, and we had a couple that came in from Greece. And when they came in, they, they, uh, they were doing you know, pretty well with the language, but they still had uh, a a very heavy accent. And uh, they understood the language enough to respond to the sermon that day. And they were having difficulty in their uh, marriage. And so they responded, came to the altar. And uh, my dad asked everybody to come up and uh, pray for people, and Katie Rudisil, who was one of our deacon's wives, uh, came up and she laid hands on the couple and started praying and started speaking in tongues. And the couple was just, you know, broken before the Lord. She got done, she went back and sat down, and we were talking with people after, and they go, where was the lady that spoke Greek? I said, we don't have anybody here from Greece except you. We don't have anybody here that speaks. Oh, no, 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 no. She prayed for us in our dialect from our village. We want to meet her. And so I remembered that Katie, I said, well, the only person that prayed with you was Katie. And she's from Arkansas. He said, I want to talk to her. So they went back and they talked to Katie and started speaking in Greek. And she, it was all Greek to her. She didn't understand any of it. But the lengths that God was going to to reach out to this couple that really needed that kind of prayer in something that was so close to their hearts. My, uh, my family is, uh, our background is all British Isles, English, Scotch-Irish. On my mom's side, there's a little bit of French. She was a Demaranville. My great great grandpa when he was baptized in the holy spirit American been here for years when when he came forward and was baptized in the holy spirit and he was already an elderly man he spoke in fluent german and there was a there was a lady in the service who had been here for a while she'd heard the sermon but when she heard him speaking in tongues he was repeating the sermon that had just been spoken, and she couldn't get over it. And she came up and gave her heart to the Lord. It was supernatural. When we were missionaries, we had gone over to Germany to work with uh, Muslims in Europe because my wife and I are both German-speaking, and there's been a large influx of uh, Muslim people coming to Germany and and so we went over there thinking we were going to work with Turks, and uh, it turns out we ended up working with Iranians, and uh, the, which is another whole story how that came about. But we—I remember the first time we had nine Iranian guys uh, sitting at our table, and Anna cooked the meal, and when it was all done. Hamid uh, said, "Hey, Kurt, aren't you afraid of us?" And I said, "Why?" He says, "We're Iranians. We could be terrorists." And I said, nah. I said, not after you walk through our front door with that new metal detector I had installed and it didn't go off. I knew I was okay. And they, they all laughed. And, you know, We've found out that Iranians just have uh, a tremendous sense of humor, uh, very similar to us in so many ways. Uh, it's amazing what, uh, what they get blamed for when it's uh, the responsibility of some of the regimes of the world. We spent delightful Hours and hours with Iranians in our home. And it uh, must have affected our daughter. You know, we we left to come back to the States when she was seven. But we've just always, you know, kept up relationships. And so a couple of years ago, she married an Iranian. And uh, so, you know, just to tell you what really close relationships we, we had with them. Hassan was a friend of ours who was not a believer and uh, some of our friends would bring other friends over from the refugee center. And uh, when Hassan came, he brought Mosen. Mosen was a Kurd. He was an Iranian, but he was from the ethnic group of the Kurds. And so when he came over to our house for the first time, it was just Hassan and it was just Mosen. I had picked them up. They were sitting at the table. I mean, this guy, Mohsen, was a nervous wreck. I mean, his hands were shaken uh, at the dinner table. He He had scars like all down one side of his neck. He uh, he smelled like cigarettes, like, like crazy. And I found out later that his he was a Kurdish resistance fighter, and he actually had uh, seen his wife shot in front of him. And by the scars, I, I didn't know anything really uh, that he went through, but he, he said he'd led really a pretty rough life. And we were at the table after we'd eaten and we talked, and he got a little more comfortable with us, and he said, "I would, I would really like to talk to you sometime." And Hassan said, "What do you want to talk to them about?" Ann and Kurt—they're good people, but uh, but they might talk to you about Jesus, and you're a Muslim, and you don't need to you don't need to hear all that. But I knew that Mosam was reaching out, and so I was like, "Wow." I said, I, I'd like to talk to you sometime. No, 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 Hassan said, you don't need to talk to them. I took him downstairs uh, to a meeting room that we had down there. And we had a, you know, a, a big screen TV and we would show the Jesus film in the Farsi language. And uh, so I took him down there and I was praying, Lord, if I could just have a couple of moments alone with Mohsen so I could talk to him. And so we got down there and uh, Hassan said, can I use your bathroom? And I was almost like, yes! <laughs> so he went up and he used the bathroom. The Lord moves in mysterious ways. And uh, he went up. He came back down. And uh, been only like five minutes. And I told Mosan, I'm going to come get you in a few days. And we'll come over here. And and I will show you uh, the Jesus film in Farsi. He goes, oh, I would really, really like that. So Hassan comes back in, and he goes, and, and I had told Mosan, we're going we're to do it without Hassan. Hassan comes back in the room and goes, what were you guys talking about? I never hesitated. I just said, I was just telling Mosan that I have the Jesus film in Farsi, and that I'm going to come over to the center one of these days and pick him up and bring him back here, and I'm going to show it to him, and we're gonna, I'm going to do it without you. He goes, why not now? I was amazed. I said, yeah, why not now? So we watched this film, and when it was all done, Mohsen said, would you pray for me that my guilt would be taken away? And I thought, wow, that's, that's great. But very often, I would have Muslim friends pray with me, uh, ask me to pray for them because they saw me as a holy man. And they, they liked the prayer, but this had nothing to do with accepting Jesus. And I, but I thought, I don't want to say, no, I'm not praying for you. So I kind of preached, prayed. I I prayed for him. Lord, you hear how Mohsen wants to have his guilt taken away. When I kind of preached. But I know, Lord, according to your word, that our sins cannot be taken away except through the blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out on the cross. And so I'm praying, Lord, that Mohsen will come to experience that. And I went on a little bit, kind of going back and forth between preaching and praying. And when, when it was done, Mohsen said, Wow, the hair was standing up on his arms. He had goosebumps. He said, I don't know what just happened. Hassan, ah, well, don't worry about it. Took him home. Saw him a week later. And he said, I have got to talk to you. Well, we stopped because uh, had—I mean Hassan had to run into the store. And he said, I have to tell you what happened to me. He said, when, when I left your house that night, I went back and I went to bed. And he said, I had a dream. And in this dream, there were like a hundred men on this field. And we were over on this side. And in the far corner, there was a man that was standing by himself. And I said to you, Kurt, who is that? And you said, well, that's Jesus. And I asked you, Kurt, would you go ask him if he would help me with my problems? And you said to me, you can go ask him yourself. And, And I said, I don't speak German that well, my English isn't that well, and I know Jesus doesn't understand Farsi. And you said, oh, yes, he does. And you grabbed my arm, and you took me to the other side of the field, and, and you told me to get down on my knees, and I asked Jesus in Farsi if he would help me with my problems. And Jesus reached down and took my hand and said, "Mosen." in perfect Farsi, he said to me, if you... Well, keep your hand in mine. I will help you with your problems. And he said, I woke up. And he said, look at me. Calm. He says, I haven't had a cigarette in a week. He says, I stopped drinking. He said, what's happened to me? It wasn't but a couple of weeks, and they transferred him to another part of Germany. And I said to Hassan, Where'd they take him? Do you do you know where he's at? What you know? Do you have a phone number or anything? No, no, don't know where he's at. Two and a half months went by, and I'd lost complete contact with Mosan. One day I woke up and I thought I got to get in touch with Mosan. I got to find him. So I was over at the center and I said Hassan, I really need to get a hold of Mosan. Do you have a number for him? Oh yeah, sure. I said. You had this all along? He goes, "Yeah." I said, "You stinker." He gave me the number and I called him. He was living about an hour and a half away, and uh, I went to I went to visit him. And he told me what had happened in the two and a half months since I'd seen him. He said, "You know, there's two state churches." in uh, germany and he went to one and he talked with the priest and told him about the dream and how you know he went to jesus in the dream and and on, and on and and the priest said to him he said i've been doing this for almost 50 years he says and i've never seen the lord why should you as a muslim get to see him he says i was so mad at him i stood up i said I i'll never go to your church and he walked out A couple of weeks later, he goes to the other state church and he goes in there and he said, they have books in the back of the pews. And I, I opened them up and I was looking like, wow, they believe like Kurt believes. So he said, I, I couldn't wait then for the service to start. And he said, and when the service started, they all came in and they were, you know, going on with the service. And I looked around and I said, wow, they have it in their books, but they don't have it in their hearts. And I said, I'm not going back. He said, and so a little time went by, and then this guy came knocking on the door. He said he was a, a Jehovah's Witness, and he brought me stuff. And I, and I felt bad because I hadn't brought most of any stuff when I came to see him. But anyway, he said he brought me stuff, and he started But he talked really differently than you did. And uh, I was starting to get confused. He was really nice. But what he told me and what I learned from you were two different things. And I got really confused. And I asked the Lord, I don't know what to believe. And then you called me and you came. So, wow, to to follow that inner prompting of the Spirit was so important that I was able to get in touch with him. Well, then I kept visiting him every couple weeks and so did the Jehovah's Witness. And And he kept bringing him stuff. And I still wasn't bringing him any stuff but he got really confused after a while. And he said, Lord, I don't know who to believe, this guy or Kurt. And he said, and I took a nap, and I had another dream. And in the dream, the Lord came and spoke to me, and he said, you listen to Kurt, he's telling you the truth. When he told me that, I went like, wow, Jesus knows my name. I knew that theologically, Okay. You know, you say, well, of course, the Lord knows everyone's name. Okay. We all understand that. But come on, give me a little bit of slack here. Just understand. that I was like, wow, Jesus knows my name. And then I got in the car. I'm on the way back. And I'm saying, Lord, why don't you do that like every time I preach? You know, when people go and take their nap in the afternoon, give them a dream and say, you listen to that guy. He's telling you the truth. But anyway, the... The point was is that the lengths that the Lord went to to minister to Mosin, this is what this is all about. It's how far Jesus will go to speak to you and to speak to your family and to speak to your neighbors and speak to your friends. He died on the cross, but he's still reaching out and reaching out to people today. When he speaks, he's got something to say. Peter got up and he said, And Jackie, if you want to go ahead and come. Men of Israel, listen to these words Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man, Delivered over by the predetermined plan and knowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. You know, everybody in this room has scary questions. Everybody in this room has something you're afraid of. Everybody in this room, if I were to go around and ask you, tell me at least one thing that you're afraid of. We all have that. But I can tell you one thing that we all have in common. The ultimate scary question is, what's going to happen to me when I die? That's that's the ultimate question that people have, no matter how they try to distract themselves, divert their attention, get really busy with a lot of other things. In moments of absolute silence, everybody faces the question, what's really going to happen to me? There are things that are bothering you today. Maybe you haven't verbalized anybody. Things that, that you're afraid of. And maybe you haven't even told your spouse about it. But that scariest question of all, what happens when I die, is answered in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus reached out to Mosen. Jesus reached out to that Greek couple. Jesus reached out to that German lady. And I'm telling you that there's a longing inside of us that I wish Jesus would reach out to me in this situation. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is here today. He's the answer to your fears. He's the answer to your needs. He's the answer to your ultimate questions. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're just going to ask the Lord to hover over us in this place today and speak to the deep of our spirits and bring an answer into our lives. Will you be open to what the Lord is trying to speak to your heart today? Father, in Jesus' name, you know the things, O Lord, that are deep within our hearts. You know the situations of my brothers and sisters that are in this place, what they're facing, what they're going to have to go through this week. But we know, Lord, you're bigger than all of this. You're bigger than all these things, and you're on our side. It's amazing, Lord, as we look into the Scripture to see all that you have done to reach out to humanity, all that you have done to reach out to us as individuals. I pray, Lord, that you will challenge us in this place today. Move upon our hearts, O Lord. Help us to surrender something that we haven't yielded to you yet to turn it over to you, Lord, and, and believe that you're going to speak to us about that. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, is there anybody say, Pastor, pray for me today. I've got something that I just, I need the Lord to speak to me about. I need some supernatural involvement in this situation. If that's you, raise your hand, because I'd like to pray for you before I go. Yes, yes. Anyone else? Pray for me, Pastor. really need the Lord's hand in this. Father, in Jesus' name, we're praying for the hand of God to just hover over our hearts and lives. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you move by the power of your Holy Spirit. For those that have raised their hands today, I'm praying, Lord, that you will help them as they now wait upon you, saying, God, I'm waiting for your intervention in this. I'm waiting for a word. I'm waiting for input on how you would like me to deal with this. I'm thanking you, Lord, and believing you. Lord, I pray throughout the remainder of this day that that we won't just walk out of the place today now that church is done, but that we will leave with an expectation that somehow, some way, you're going to speak into our lives this week. And we thank you, God, and give you praise in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. There's nothing worth more that will never come close, nothing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence.